Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Recently, a court allowed Gawker to probe billionaire Peter Thiel's funding of a suit that drove the company into bankruptcy. That's a concern among those who regularly bankroll litigation. A little later in the show, we'll be joined by senior reporter Andrew Strickler, who'll talk us through what the ruling will mean for the cottage industry of litigation funding. We'll also be joined by Carrie Ben, who will share the legal industry developments from the week. And at the end of the show, we'll discuss the latest legal woes of rapper DMX. Really As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey. Can't wait to get to that DMX one at the end, guys. Yeah, I mean, we're all kind of... We're all just waiting on that. You know, I've been thinking about... You know how people say, like, why don't they build the whole plane out of the black box? I'm thinking, why don't we build the whole show out of the offbeat segment? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just waiting around. DMX. Well, yeah. before we start, we have to... You, we, uh, breaking news. Yeah, breaking news today. Uh, the juice is loose. I don't know if yeah. you guys heard. OJ has been paroled. Did you see I that? I had not heard that. Are yeah. you serious? No, yeah. I'm totally serious. He's I've out. been very busy with my job today, guys. He's, He's walking among us. Yeah. <sighs> and I told Bill before we started, we should actually be worried, because I feel like it's only a matter of time before OJ starts his own legal podcast. And well, so. <laughs> I mean, should we be worried or just waiting for his next misstep so he becomes an offbeat segment? Yeah. Like, that's what's going to happen, That's right? a good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just a matter of time. Snake eating the tail and right. all that. So, right. Yeah. So what are our first cases we're going to talk about up top? We're going to talk about a big weed ruling. Blaze it up for us, Bill. Yeah. So uh, so I, this is interesting to me because I wrote that big story a couple months ago about law firms setting up cannabis practices all yeah, throughout the country. Yeah, that was a great story if people haven't read it. I thought it was all right. So <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, buddy. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. So um, Massachusetts' highest appeals court on Monday ruled that employers can be held liable for disability discrimination if they fire an employee for testing positive for medically prescribed marijuana. So the court revived a uh, handicap discrimination suit filed by a woman named Christina Barbudo, who claimed that her employer, Advantage Sales and Marketing, very nondescript name, yeah, had illegally fired her because she used medical marijuana to treat Crohn's disease okay. and uh, tested positive for a, for a drug test. So this is an unusual ruling, right? It's, yeah. So it's being hailed. I mean, it's being hailed as as really a first of its kind ruling with pretty big implications both for for Massachusetts where it immediately has impact and for all the other states in the country that have that have legalized marijuana well and one that it was always ripe for legal conflict when state by state that started getting legalized. Can you talk us through like, because I know it's legal in Massachusetts, but obviously not legal at a federal level. Right. I assume that was a central point of the conflict here. It's a huge problem. I mean, it's a huge problem for law firms. It's a huge problem for anyone who wants to deal in this industry. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with something that is legal in your state. You're setting up a business. You're trying to get insurance. You're trying to use banks. There are lots of problems caused by the fact that it's still federally illegal. One of those is these issues of, of labor law. And the issue here, that was at the very root of, of this case. You know, normally an employer is required to, quote, reasonably accommodate when an employee needs to take a medication. Right. So uh, because marijuana remains illegal at the federal level, the company, the employer here said that it was automatically unreasonable to, um, to give this employee a waiver from the drug tests that they give to everyone else. Okay. And what did the court say? Court rejected that argument, said that uh, medically prescribed marijuana is just as lawful as any other medication and that unless a company can prove that it would cause undue burden to allow an employee an exception to a drug-free policy to let them use marijuana on offsite on the, in their own time, um, that that 
that that they shouldn't that that shouldn't just be automatically against the rules. So this was a real win for states' rights. Then it was, yeah. Um, the 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 court said specifically, like it wouldn't be. I think they said it would not be respectful of recognition of Massachusetts voters shared by legislatures and voters in the vast majority of states that marijuana has an accepted medical use for some patients suffering from debilitating medical conditions. Okay, so here's me in the workplace right now. <laughs> Uh, Alex is blazing miming. up the bong. <laughs> yeah, Alex uh, is making a cartoon, now, right? a cartoon bong. Uh, <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, 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 I presume we can't just be blazing up at work. No, now, there were big yeah. limits okay. written into the rule. It is still a groundbreaking ruling for folks that want to take that want to use marijuana as a medication, but the ruling came with pretty big limits on yeah. what it was saying. They they explicitly said a bunch of different things that it wasn't saying. They said that employers aren't legally obligated to tolerate on-site marijuana use, obviously. Like, you can't yeah. come to work and smoke weed. Uh, they And they can still ban it if it would, quote, impair the employee's performance or pose some kind of safety risk. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's proving that it would be an undue burden to let, you know, th- th- that's what the court said. Um, they also said that uh, for safety-sensitive jobs like transportation employees or um, for uh federal contractors who yeah, have to they have comply their own with rules, right? exactly so those were the the limits on what they said okay so what's sort of the what's sort of the takeaway here on balance with all the stuff we're talking yeah, about yeah i mean in massachusetts right now because that's where the ruling takes effect yes. it means that you can't use these blanket policies anymore you can't say well the drugs illegal federally i don't have to think about this it's it's mm-hmm. it i can still ban my employees from using it regardless of its legality under state law you can't do that anymore You have to take a more nuanced, sort of careful approach to it and see if you could make this reasonable accommodation for an employee that wants to use it in these ways that wouldn't be burdensome to you. And will this expand out past Massachusetts, presumably? That's the thought. Vin Vin Guerreri, our employment reporter, he's been on the show. um, He wrote a really great story. You should all check it out on Law 360 about the fact that this is sort of, you know, anything that happens with marijuana because it's so untested can quickly become sort of a a bellwether, like a... a, um, a landmark because mm-hmm. the, sure. this law hasn't been examined yet. So there's all these problems out there dealing with this state federal split and that this interpretation could spread to other jurisdictions, particularly other states where the law is worded the way that Massachusetts was, where it specifically said you can't discriminate and, and right. you know, had these more explicit protections. Uh, New York is one of those. Um, uh, Minnesota is one of those. So it will People think it will spread to other places. So if you're in those other places and you're an employment lawyer, it created a lot of new questions for you to answer when you're crafting these kind of drug policies. We'll just add this to our list of areas where marijuana has become really tricky legal territory. Yes, exactly. Okay, Alex, can you beat that story? Speaking of <laughs> speaking of tricky legal territory, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Twitter.com. Uh, I've heard of it. It's a, yeah. sure. It's a free website, correct? It is free. Yeah. Shockingly. Wow. Shockingly yeah. still free for us to use. Yep. If you are a judge, federal judge, or any kind of judge, I suppose, you might want to check your DMs because <laughs> the Ninth Circuit slid in there this week uh-huh. and issued a really interesting opinion about how judges' activity on Twitter can you know, have a certain bearing on a litigation. It came to bear in this case involving a timber company in California called Sierra Pacific. 
And that company settled with DOJ in 2012, uh, $122 million settlement. So, like, not an insignificant sum. No, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is this is high-stakes stuff. They settled over um, a case that the feds brought against them for their role in a 2007 wildfire that burned up a whole bunch of forests in uh, uh, near Sacramento. Mm-hmm. They eventually appealed the terms of that settlement because— they had reason to believe that the government had sort of done some shady stuff with regard to like withholding certain information and like coercing witnesses to give misleading testimony. Anyway, they appealed it to the Ninth Circuit. And the most interesting thing that came up during their appeal to the Ninth Circuit was that um, they came upon a Twitter account that they had reason to believe belonged to the district judge who presided over the case, a man named William Shubb. So um, what was he? What what was this account doing? Yeah, um, good question. First of all, the um, the account is private now, but you can check it out. It's at nostalgist one, the number <laughs> oh, one. Oh, that's great. And the bio, oh, I didn't cool. Write, yeah, cool. I didn't write it down, but the bio is something. It was just like memories of time gone by or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, they basically said that the activity stemming from this account should have meant that that Judge Shubb should have recused himself from the case. That was so was the... he tweeting a bunch of crazy stuff? Or no, what was he doing? All, all they presented to the Ninth Circuit was that he both was followed by and was following the U.S. Attorney's Office in California oh. that was spearheading this case, the Eastern District Attorney's Office. And also he tweeted out a just a news article about the trial with no further commentary. And the headline mm. of that article was Sierra Pacific still liable for moonlight fire damages. So that doesn't seem that bad. No. I mean, the, the issue there is that the company uh, said that, you know, the headline of that particular article is false. Uh, they never admitted liability. It was under the terms of their settlement. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that is what they that's what they alleged. And that's what they said. The judge should have recused himself. The Ninth Circuit disagreed. And they basically said, you know, the mere presence of this Twitter account and who it follows and just sort of without commentary, passing along news articles that are publicly available does not does not create the appearance of bias or doesn't impugn the decision-making ability of the court. But they still went further and said that this is sort of a cautionary, the beginning of a cautionary tale, <laughs> Yeah, right? well, that's exactly it. A, a lot of things people post on Twitter is a cautionary tale. <laughs> well, you can see, even in this case where they're saying this is not a big deal, they could... They were really worried about some sure. something. Not really. Well, whatever. I don't well, want you to don't work. want to create law that just says that district judges mouth. can go out and tweet whatever they want. Definitely. I mean, that'd be crazy for right. officials to tweet whatever they want. Right? Yeah. The money quote basically said, uh, this is quote, nonetheless, this case is a cautionary tale about the possible pitfalls of judges engaging in social media activity relating to pending cases. And we reiterate the importance of maintaining the appearance of propriety mm-hmm. both on and off the bench. Um Elsewhere in the opinion, they had a long footnote that referenced some judicial conference notes that actually said that when judges identify themselves as like a fan of something on a social media network, you know, you can do that on Facebook Mm -hmm. and certain other things that can be problematic. And I thought that was interesting because they're basically saying like following is not an endorsement. This is like RTs are not endorsements. right? Right. Like that's I mean, they didn't say that, but that's right. If you read between the margins there, that's what they're basically saying, like. It's problematic if you're saying, like, I am a fan of this on Facebook, but not if I just follow the attorney's office. He's a judge, after all. Yeah. Like, right. I mean, he might be interested in learning about what the attorney's office is doing. Sure. So, like we're saying here, in this particular instance, they said, no big deal. But 
you know, keep your wits about you. Yeah. I, I subscribe to the notion that nobody should ever tweet about anything for any reason. A rule I don't follow myself. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I follow you on Twitter. You tweet. Well, I mean. Fairly, fairly actively. <laughs> against, against, my, against my better judgment sometimes. But uh, I would suggest well, the listener go and uh, take, a, take a dig through the archive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Don't, don't court that action. You also tweet a lot. <laughs> but yeah, so we're not judges, though. That's the bottom line here. Definitely not. Uh, and if you are a judge, you can do certain things and you cannot do certain other things. And I, I, I guess the takeaway from the Ninth Circuit opinion here is, you know, just just give it a lot of thought. Great. <laughs> that should be advice for everyone on Twitter. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Thanks, yeah. Alex. Thank you. A little later in the show, we'll be speaking with senior reporter Andrew Strickler about litigation funding and if a recent ruling related to Gawker is going to put the squeeze on those that bankroll lawsuits. But up first, a look at industry happenings with Carrie Benn and the Legal Industry Minute. Thanks, Amber. Law firm leaders are looking forward to the second half of 2017 with confidence. According to a survey by City Private Bank's law group, 51% of respondents said the second half will be better than the first, but the study revealed leaders may be worried that growing expenses might hurt their margins. Speaking of expenses, non-equity partner roles have surged at big law firms in recent years, but senior reporter Abra Coe writes that trend might be reversing as some firms look to save on costs and boost profitability. Experts say the non-equity role has in some cases become a dumping ground for overpaid and underperforming attorneys, which means many firms are looking to either associates or contract attorneys to perform the same tasks at a lower cost. And finally, President Trump has tapped Hogan Lovell's partner Ty Cobb, and yes, he's related to the famous baseball player, to join his legal team as the probe into Russia's interference into the U.S. election continues. Cobb has served as counsel for a number of other high-profile political figures facing scandals dating back to the Clinton administration. He will serve as special counsel to the president. This has been The Week in the Legal Industry. Hulk Hogan's company-killing lawsuit against Gawker, largely funded by Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel out of a grudge against the media company, shone a light on the practice of so-called third-party litigation funding. And a ruling last month allowing Gawker to investigate Thiel means the story isn't over. Andrew Strickler, senior legal ethics reporter at Law360, joins us today to talk about how the attention the case is drawing to outside funding can make those who do it very nervous. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. The man who can really get into Hogan Gawker, unlike some jamokes on this podcast. Yeah. I mean, we, we did talk about it before, and it's such an interesting case, and, and it's a burgeoning trend, so we wanted to dig deep today with you, Andrew. <laughs> yes. So, for starters, can you just set up for those that didn't hear our episode about this before, what happened in this Gawker case? Just a quick overview. Well, Gawker is in bankruptcy, obviously. They were put into bankruptcy by an extremely big verdict for Hulk Hogan in this sex tape case. Um, and it was revealed in that, uh, during the course of that case, that Peter Thiel had poured millions and millions of dollars uh, into supporting Hogan's case against Gawker and had done so because he was displeased with Gawker over a story from a decade ago that outed him as gay. 
Um, and in the bankruptcy proceeding, the administrator for the estate then turned around and said, we think that Teal has been essentially orchestrating a campaign against Gawker and funding it via a law firm proxy, not surprisingly Hogan's law firm, uh, who's also represented other plaintiffs against Gawker. Uh, and we think that that might set them up uh, for a claim in the bankruptcy case. So the Maybe judge let them dig into it last month. The judge allowed a what's called a Rule 2004 exam, which is very broad mm-hmm. and we should say kind of low evidentiary bar. Yeah. Well, it's, it's to discover a cause of action. It's right? to discover right. a cause of action. And you don't have to put up a lot to say that maybe out there is a possible claim that we could go and pursue. It's interesting in this case, of course, because they're going after Teal and the law firm. Teal was not a party in the Hogan lawsuit. Mm -hmm. uh, And it really comes down to whether or not the money and their plan that he had put together for that case was some kind of actionable conspiracy against Gawker. So your story told the reader that that this case, this Teal being behind this case, introduced uh, to a new audience this concept of litigation funding. We are that kind of new audience. Could you sort of set us up here with what litigation funding is? Well, traditionally, and in the context that we talk about it mostly at Law360 here, mm-hmm. of course, is commercial litigation funding. These are private investment firms whose purpose is to find cases, to fund cases, mostly plaintiffs' cases against businesses, portfolios of cases, uh, in which they put money uh, behind the case in exchange for a cut of a settlement or a verdict Mm -hmm. or what have you. Uh, It's a very analytical kind of business in which uh, private investors are looking for what they call, of course, meritorious claims that they can get a cut of the profit from. So you give this money the way that you give it to any investment vehicle, but rather than stay playing the stock market, they they play the courts here. That's right. The yeah. underlying asset class, as they like to call it, yeah. is the litigation itself, mm-hmm. is the claim itself. Uh, And that's why Teal is so different, right? Because he wasn't just dispassionately looking at something and trying to make a buck. He was targeting Gawker because he hated them. Right. And that is what makes this Teal situation so fascinating because his motivation for funding all this case, and we should say that it was done all behind uh, closed doors. It was not disclosed in the case until it had been rumored. And finally, he was essentially forced to admit it. Um, This is all coming uh, because of a personal vendetta against Gawker. He's a billionaire. He didn't like Gawker. He wanted to hurt them. And he had the money to do it. That is a ex- very, very different kind of thinking, obviously, than the private investors, the Burfords and the Benthams and the Harbors of the world who are commercial investors uh, and third-party funders. So for the third-party funders that are just the commercial type, not the teal type, is this considered ethical? Are there any implications there that they were worried about before teal sort of dropped into the scene? Well, it's an interesting question because there are uh, a limited number of decisions, uh, a limited number of ethical decisions uh, and court rules that address third-party funding. Uh, and essentially, third-party funders um, are 
allowed to go about their business as they see fit at this point. But there are a lot of questions about where the ethical bounds should be, about particularly about disclosures and about um, how you draw a line between an investor's interest in a case and the litigant's interest in a case. And a lot of those rules are still being developed and there's still a debate about any number of points. Uh, and that's all happening right now. Into the middle of that drops Peter Thiel. Peter <laughs> yeah. Thiel is in the news. Peter Thiel is a huge, huge name. Hulk Hogan, the sex tape, the notoriety of the, the Gawker uh, case introduced this idea of third-party funding in a very, very strange kind of context with Peter Thiel. Well, and I, I wanted to ask you, this is on that same tack, like... Where do we go from here? I mean, we're, we're already talking about how this is kind of a fraught area of litigation anyway. And it's, there's a lot of uncertainty. And when something as splashy and controversial as this happens, what are, we, what are we looking at here in the future in terms of what the bar thinks and what kind of oversight might be in store? What's like afoot because of this? Well, that is a good question because the, the funders, uh, I think, rightly argue that Peter Thiel's motivations and the way that he went about funding the case against Gawker bears little or no resemblance to the kind of thinking that goes into traditional third-party funding. However, he does uh, sort of embody an extreme example of what could, in theory, happen mm -hmm. with a commercial funder who decided that they maybe their interest is to take down a company you know, via some non-meritorious claim or to fund some sort of bigger attack on a litigant in a way that people would consider unethical. Abuse, right. Abusing the court system. Abusing the court system. And we can imagine scenarios where it isn't just some personal vendetta. It could be a company trying to stamp out a competitor or something sure, of that nature. Sure, Absolutely. Censor or, people. Or, yeah, yeah, totally. Or drive down a stock price for a reason uh, to make a, a company uh, more uh, uh, valuable or a, a better target for a takeover. I mean, yeah. there's all kinds of... Again, hypothetical ways that you can see third-party funding being used in a way that people are going to consider unethical and an abuse of the court system. Uh, and so are there efforts to, to put rules in place? I mean – well, there are certainly discussions about it. Uh, there is a sort of lobbying effort happening, mostly pushed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce right now, uh, for federal rules on disclosure of third-party funding. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a California federal court rule change recently uh, requiring disclosure of third-party funding in class action cases. Uh, that was a move that most of the funders opposed, of course, because they feel like disclosures is simply going to add another uh, another thing to argue about in yeah. cases that are plenty expensive already. I think my headphones cut out for a second. Did you say the Chamber of Commerce is pushing for more <laughs> rules and absolutely, oversight? Yeah. Absolutely. They've decided, <laughs> no, they've yeah. decided they, need, they need some more oversight. That uh, makes sense, though. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it, this, the Teal and Gawker situation comes at a very interesting time for the, the commercial funders who are promoting themselves in a, in a more aggressive way. They have a lot more visibility. They're sponsoring conferences. They're writing op-ed pieces in, in legal publications. And they are um, basically selling themselves as, uh, as a very a more common part of the legal system. At the same time... Teal is out there stirring the pot with Gawker, yeah. and we have this interesting uh, decision in this bankruptcy case uh, that may or may not come to anything. It's 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 a yeah, long shot, but it will keep Teal and this whole issue about how funders can influence big cases in the news at the very least. 
And that's exactly why we brought you here to explain <laughs> all of this because we're going to keep watching this one. Thank you for being here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, dude. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and we have a really fun one to talk about this time, guys. It's all about the rapper DMX. Yeah, it's been a rough ride for uh, for our man <laughs> DMX. It sure, it sure X has. is going to give us something to talk about. But he's not going to give the, the IRS any money. No. Yeah. Well, you guys are kind of stepping on some of the material here, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> uh, the IRS is pursuing DMX, real name Earl Simmons, uh-huh. for a $1.7 million tax bill. Now, is uh, this related to his planned fight with George Zimmerman? <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know if that ever went down. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, it, no, actually, the answer is no, because this covers unpaid taxes from 2002 to 2007, which would have uh-huh. been before the Zimmerman I actually do know famous. what part of this is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he was in 2011, 2012 on a reality television show called Celebrity Couples Therapy. Oh, sure. yeah. I did not have to look this up for the podcast. Mm-hmm. I actually watched was this Celebrity Dr. Drew? Couples Therapy. I don't think it was Dr. Drew. It's been okay. a few years, but I watch a lot of crap TV. So um, Was he on there with his DMX? <laughs> he nice. was, in yeah. fact, Thanks. on there with his DMX. Um, but the U.S. attorney even said, that's only part of this tax uh, bill, but... The U.S. attorney said that he allegedly refused to tape the show until they had issued him a check with the taxes taken out. And he wouldn't tape it until they issued him a new check that didn't withhold any taxes. (laughs) Nice. So, you know. Okay. Well, anyway, this all this all kind of came to a head this week. He was he was um, he surrendered himself to federal uh, authorities last week. And spent a night in jail, posted a $500,000 bond. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, which is always funny when these tax cases bu- bubble up involving famous yeah. people. They're able to post bond. Um, he did that on Monday. And then the saga, the big the big news this week um, was on Monday, Manhattan judge, Jed Rakoff. Um, he allowed DMX to continue traveling and touring, um, but said he had to come back to court on September 6th. So he was able to, he said you're able to sort of continue carrying on your business. And he's still touring, which was a surprise to me. Uh, the whole thing became, obviously became an enormous spectacle, especially happening in Manhattan. And there were, uh, there were, there, there was a, there was this congregation of press outside the courthouse. And one of the big highlights was DMX palling around with his attorney, this guy named Murray Richmond, and did uh, a rather, a rather sad and dispiriting uh, freestyle <laughs> rap. He looked very old, too. Not the attorney. The well, he's, DMX. he's an I older mean, gentleman as yeah, well. but uh, DMX looked yeah, weathered. DMX is 46 years old, which made me feel very old. Um, and anyway, like I said, his attorney's name is Murray Richmond. And he, he said something along the lines of, Don't worry with Murray. He'll get you out of jail in a hurry. Uh, and then he, he, he went on and on. Uh, then he also, then, then this was really funny because then he like walked away and I, and then Richmond basically said like, he's in charge of the case, but also told reporters, uh, yeah, DMX is going to need additional tax counsel as well. Like I'm not a tax lawyer. I'm just kind of helping. Well, you know, it seems like over the years, DMX has needed counsel for a myriad of things. Cause I looked this up before we came in here. He's been charged with, um, Things like animal cruelty, reckless driving, drug possession, uh, false identity stuff. Like, so he's not a stranger to having issues like this. But this one seems particularly bad because if you add up all of the tax evasion counts and assume the worst, he could get up to forty-four years in prison. Yeah, and uh, does he think this is a game? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll we'll drop in some dog barking noises later. 
uh, you know, it's funny if he's if he's on the hook for that much jail time potentially. Uh, this is really interesting because the other thing he said at the uh, at the little congregation there was that he he called the Manhattan Correctional Center where he spent one night disgusting, but he also disclosed to the press that he ate five sandwiches while he spent his night in there, which I which thought was pretty best. humorous. Also, you guys dropped the ex going give it to you, but he's not going to give it to the IRS uh, line. Yeah, you guys both arrived at that. The attorneys who are pursuing the case have said that at multiple press outings. How can you not? Well, I, it's just right there. I myself, if I were a DMX, I probably would have responded with, "Y'all gonna make me lose my house." <laughs> Up in here. Um, anyway, the they, uh, they they may <laughs> they may if it, if it plays out this way. Anyway, uh, looking forward, uh, there are some dates to keep in mind. As I said, he's due back in court on September sixth. But more importantly, if you want to see him, there are some other dates in mind. He's going to be in Chicago on Saturday, July twenty second. That's very soon. Uh, then he's back on the road to Atlantic City on August third. He's in Philly on September second. A DMX and 3rd, show though. in Atlantic City. Yeah. That is just. <laughs> It's the it's like post apocalyptic, and then he's in Philly on September second and third, uh, Miami on September seventh. Uh, he's gonna be very busy. Why is he not coming to New York? We could take a podcast field trip. To I mean, he's in Atlantic show. City. Close, you know, he's uh, already here for court anyway. Check your local Ticketmaster. That's what I say. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Thanks for bringing that, Alex. Yeah, definitely a good place for us to stop, drop, perhaps <laughs> even shut them down in a rush. That's that is plenty. <laughs> All right, thanks guys. That'll it was really do fun it. Being That'll here. do thanks, it for guys. today. Thanks for joining us, everybody. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've discussed today, check out our website at law360.com backslash podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. We have several people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest, Andrew Strickler. Contributing reporters this week include Vingareri, Rick Archer, Abra Coe, Sam Reisman, and Pete Brush. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman. X, give it to you.